Welcome to Gut Questions. I'm Parker, friend and right-hand man to Dr. William DePaulo at the University of Washington in Seattle. Will is an immunologist and he studies the microbiome and specifically he studies the gut microbiome, the bacteria that reside in the gut as opposed to the other microbes that reside in the gut. In this episode, Will walks me through the colorectal cancer story. He's very, very patient with me. Um, and I finally get it. And I get how cool this project really is. So yes, of course, other groups are studying, studying colorectal cancer. But this project has a little twist to it in that Will and his team are looking not at the cancer, but at the environment where the cancer exists. So another cool piece of this project is that the results that they got actually go totally against current science dogma. So that's pretty cool. It's a beautiful project. It's so well designed. It's simple and it's elegant. And I hope that you see that too as you listen to this episode. And I'm hopeful that we get funding to continue this work. Colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer diagnosed in men and women here in the United States. And this year alone in 2021, 52,980 people will die from colorectal cancer. So that's a, that's a pretty big number. And this is my very shameless plea for support for money. If you are interested, please reach out to me directly at aparker at medicine.washington.edu. And if you do have a real interested, but you'd like to talk to Will further, I can definitely make that happen and set up time for you to speak with him. So with that, I give you my friend and boss, Dr. Will DePaulo. So that's one thing, that, one question that we had and we we're hoping to try to answer is what environment, is there an environment in the gut that promotes that um, progression from adenoma now, which is a polyp, to carcinoma, which is a full-blown cancer? Um, and so everybody, or a lot of the groups out there have been um, studying uh, the cancer side of things because those patients, you know, they progress and, and they're sick and they somehow the polyps have been missed. And so it's progressed. But, um, but really the important place to look is at that polyp time point because this is the deciding factor of like, you know, you're here at two pathways. You're going to go to cancer if you're this 5% or you're not going to go to cancer. And so what, where in this environment, is there something that's kind of influencing that? So we wanted to study the microbiome of these polyps um, and associated with the polyps to see if there was some signature that we could find that would um, maybe give us a hint as to sort of the, the you know, if these polyps would become cancerous or not. Now, a huge caveat to that is we take the polyps out. <laughs> so we're studying the polyps. So we won't know. It's hard to tell like if this polyp would have gone to cancer or not. So yeah. really we just were kind of, we wanted to just get in there and start like culturing the bacteria out of these polyps and sort of see who's there. And if we could differentiate, you know, a healthy person's colon from a person with a polyp based upon just the microbiome that we, that we have obtained. So that's how the project started. And then it kind of evolved out of that. So I can talk about that in a little bit. But when, okay, so the polyp and polyp associated is, does polyp, when you take a polyp associated tissue, do you mean um, tissue to the side of like near the polyp or right. what is that? 
So, yeah, so um, when you go in for a colonoscopy, they'll remove the polyp and that has to go to pathology. So like we don't touch the actual polyp because that could affect the diagnosis. But we take a we take a sample adjacent to the biopsy or the polyp. We take a biopsy adjacent to the polyp, and that um, is going to have the same sort of microbiome that's associated with it. These microbiomes are not just stuck right on the polyp. They're kind of like it's like a landscape of the, the microbes. And so we took uh, one that's very close to the polyp, and then we took one that was like further away and healthy looking tissue, but in the same area. So that we had like an internal control, and then we had our polyp-free patients, which was our out, our external control. So we had those two right. controls. Um, I'm gonna pause for one second. I have to plug my computer in because it's gonna die. So just give me. Oh yeah, I'll just hang out. Yeah, hold on. Yeah, here. just I will be right back. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> I'll just talk to my puppy. Oh, you're I just want you to see my pajama bottoms. <laughs> I'm only dressed from the top up. <laughs> um, okay, there, now we're all set. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that, um, that, you know, we were able to have both internal and external controls, like an interpatient control and an intrapatient control uh, with this study. And so, it was, I mean, the study itself is was pretty simplistic and, and we had no idea what we were looking for. It was kind of a fishing expedition at first. So we would send off the biopsy for sequencing, which kind of tells you everybody that's there, alive or dead or whatever. Um, because some of these bacteria, when you send it off for sequencing, it's looking at DNA. So right. you get DNA from dead bacteria. So it's not necessarily means that they're alive or viable. Um, then we took the biopsy and we also cultured it in an anaerobic chamber that's devoid of oxygen so that these bacteria in your intestines will grow. And then you get the viable bacteria. Granted, there's a caveat here too, which is you're only going to get the ones that can grow on that nutrient plate. And, you know, we didn't want to do 10 million plates with, and really do a selection process. So we just chose a couple of different media types and we just plated it to see what we would grow. And it came, became very apparent from our growth that we... Um, found that like, so one bacteria that's present in a lot of the patients was um, Bacteroides fragilis or BFRAG is kind of mm -hmm. the name. Yeah. And so, um, but it was at a higher level in those patients with polyps than in uh, polyp-free patients. And, and what that means is that I, I liked that idea because I didn't want to find something that was present in one and not present in the other. Like I wanted to see bacteria that were present in polyp-free patients, but also in patients with polyps to look to see if the type of bacteria, like not the type, but if the beef frags that was present in both had different genetics associated with them and different phenotypes. So did oh. the polyp environment alter the beef frag in such a way that made it different from the polyp-free beef frag? So it's a, it's a little distinction there that ended up being true. We've ended up finding um, some genetic and phenotypic differences um, in the um, patients that had polyps. Their BFRAG definitely um, was you know, immune activating and definitely had some phenotypes there that were very different than the ones that we isolated from the polyp-free individuals. So this is sort of the, sort of the 10,000 feet view overview of the project, yeah. Wow. Um, I, so I've seen that talk now a number of times. I've heard you describe it a number of times. And this is actually the first time that it really makes sense to me or that I understand 
um, all of the uh, graphs that I'm always looking at with the differences in the BFRAG and the whatever, and I'm kind of like not really sure exactly what I'm looking at. I know. <laughs> Give this project a little bit more. Um, so, and actually, that the, I know that this um, project is under review <clears throat> um, with a great journal. So, hopefully, that gets published. And I'm curious to know like, if I read this paper, um, what would you, as the researcher, hope that I walk away understanding. Well, there's a couple, I think this- Which I might walk away and not understand it at all. Like I just said, I've seen this so, talk a million times, so. There's a couple of things. There's a couple of things in the cancer field. And you know, I hate dogma. I hate dogma. I'm like one yeah. of those people, like if I hear the word dogma, I like immediately want to prove it wrong. And it doesn't get you funded, <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> but it, And it doesn't get you published, but it, it is fulfilling if you can, figure out that the dogma is wrong. And I think in the cancer field, um, and especially with the microbiome, there's this idea that they, everybody likes to put things in boxes, right? Like even we, as people put other people in boxes and like you look at somebody and you say, that person's this or this person's that. And then you just kind of like, that's all that you can think about. You see that person walking down the street, you're like, oh, there's that, whatever. So, um, and I'm not saying what boxes are enough there because it can be. <laughs> It could be, that's a great person box. Um, and so uh, I think in cancer, we like in the microbiome, there's this idea of drivers and passenger bacteria. And so um, what this means is that um, driver bacteria, as far as colon colorectal cancer goes, are bacteria that can actually, that are like sort of those nasty guys that live within our intestine, but at such a low level, they don't do anything. But mm -hmm. upon activation or upon the chance to get a niche to themselves, they can actually cause mutations themselves in your DNA. So there's an uh, E. coli called a PKF positive E. coli. These E. coli can actually dam damage DNA themselves and cause the cells to become carcinogenic, right? Um, and so that's a driver bacteria because it's actually driving the process. Um, okay. Once it gets in there and it starts driving, then it will pick up passenger bacteria in the backseat like an Uber. And these bacteria <laughs> like, are like, oh, this is comfy. I don't, I don't have the mechanisms to like, I don't have feet. I can't drive the car myself, but I definitely will ride on the back until, you know, until <laughs> the trip's over. And so these passenger bacteria will get on and eventually they'll, because they've liked the atmosphere that the driver bacteria have created, right? So they're like, oh, this is now, it's a little bit cantharous. It's a little bit homey for me. Like this is an environment that I like. And so these passenger bacteria will jump on and they eventually choke out the driver bacteria. And then they sort of take over and, and sort of propagate and, and continue to grow until you know people study the cancer and whatever. So people are trying to put bacteria into, are you a driver, are you a passenger? Some bacteria have been drivers and they're now passengers. Some bacteria have, are both, they're drivers and they're, they're driving, but they're in the backseat driving. Like it's-, it's Backseat drivers. <laughs> confusing, but yeah. what I think our paper shows is that the initiating of inflammation doesn't actually happen through either the driver or the passenger. It happens through our own commensal bacteria that are present. So it means that our own good bacteria that are there, these probiotic species are somehow being influenced by this changing environment. Because remember, I told you that these cells become dysplastic. So they start proliferating abnormally. And when you start proliferating abnormally, you produce metabolic byproducts that weren't there before. You, pr you promote maybe inflammation and immune cell infiltration. You 
promote all these things that are happening that are going to speed out and affect the microbiome that's right there, right adjacent to the, the epithelium and the, the polyp. So our own commensals are starting to read these signals and they have two decisions to make as these decisions come in. They have, oh crap, let's commit suicide and get the hell out of here. Like this is, oh, we're, we're done. Or, oh crap, let's change our genetics and like let's turn on a certain set of genes to make sure that we hold on faster, that we hold on more tightly that we um, you know, start affecting the environment so that we still get what we need out of this so that we don't die. So they're like the survivors, right? And that's what this BFRAG, it's a non-toxigenic fragilis, And it's actually people want to use it as a probiotic, which we can talk about that another time. Oh, yeah. But this is a, it's a probiotic species. It's considered a probiotic species, the non-toxigenic BFRAG. Um, non-toxigenic BFRAG, um, produces immune suppressive cytokines. It's, it has been shown in models of inflammation to suppress inflammation. So it's a good guy, but you put a good guy into a zombie apocalypse and that guy starts breaking heads and like, <laughs> and, and that's, like what, <laughs> right, that's what the non-toxigenic beefage decides to do. It's like, Hey, we are not ready. This is not our final swan song. So like, we're going to hold on as best we can. And so they turn on a different genetic program that starts to create changes in their membrane that then induces more inflammation. And so they now have shouldered out, all the other commensals have, have picked the bucket and died off. And they now are taking over and they've become a majority of what we see around the polyp, but now they're changed in their immune stimulatory. So they help promote the inflammation. And now what I think- so It's like when that, the good bacteria go, like they've been influenced. Yeah. And right, right. Now they're bad. It's like a bad, right. um, it's like when you're a teenager and you. <laughs> you're with a bad crowd or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Teen they, girls. They, they turned on these genes and now they're, they're creating inflammation of themselves. So even if the body kind of gets its inflammation and in control as far as the, the polyp goes, now you have a group of microbes that's promoting inflammation on their own. And so that's going to, inflammation causes um, cell infiltration, it causes growth, it causes all this stuff. And so then what happens in some people, they go in and they'll have their polyp removed and, and that they go back and people who have polyps removed from a certain location, more than likely will get a polyp back in that same location, like our similar location. And I, I, my theory is that I think that the, they're not getting rid of, they're not altering their BFRAG, so yeah. if they could get their polyp taken care of and then somehow eliminate this BFRAG now and like re or like force it out by taking probiotics. We, we, I mean, this is something we have to test in the lab. We're not studying this right now, but we, I want oh, to. Okay. Um, somehow you can manipulate that microenvironment to sort of promote, like, this, try to get the tissue back and the microbiome back to like steady state, quiet, you know, just interacting with itself. Balance. In some, in 5% of these people with polyps or whatever, 5% polyps there's a triggering event that then induces the carcinogenic pathway. And so that could be one of these driver bacteria now says, hey, this guy made an environment that's like really nice for me and I can come in here and I can like definitely do some damage. And so then they'll settle in and they'll start to, they'll start to edge out some of that. Now, to make matters confusing, non-toxigenic BFRAG has a cousin called toxigenic BFRAG. And so this BFRAG has a, spe a special toxin called BFT, big friendly toxin, no, it's BFRAG toxin. 
Um, <laughs> I always call it big friendly toxin, but it's wait, it reminds me of the um, the yeah, no in Maine, you know that in the Indian. Um, oh, right. Yeah, the BFI. BFI. So, uh, so this is the Just big. The big not the it's not friendly though that's not friendly so so non-toxigenic beef radish is probiotic and then it's got this it's what we call enterotoxigenic beef fragilis which is the toxigenic form so this is this this is this bug but it has somehow it uh, has a toxin associated with it and this can you know has been associated with colorectal cancer in a lot of um, models and in people so what could happen is that our probiotic gone bad has altered the environment allowing bugs like its cousin to come in, the toxigenic guy to induce DNA damage or that E. coli I was talking about may be able to say, oh, wow, this environment's now permissive for me to colonize and create some damage. So I think what I like to say is that we're showing that, so again, going back to the dogma is that it's yeah. not necessarily the driver bacteria that are creating the inflammation and the DNA damage. What I think is happening is that there are our own commensals are responding to the changing tissue environment. And in that response, they're paving the way for these drivers and these passengers to come in and create the damage that they're doing. So that's how I like to sort of position it. If you want to stick with that road analogy, I think that's- I love it. To do it. So, and so that's what, you know, that's what I think I would like love people to take away from this is that in any disease, our commensals are there first. And so that means that something has to happen to those commensals to allow these other bacteria to either bully them out or to grow. And, and it could be that in some cases like this one, the commensals change and become pathogenic. And so I think it's just a, a little bit of a, a, a warning out there that you, know, it, you can take probiotics all you want. If you put your probiotic in a shitty environment, I don't know what's yeah. gonna happen to that probiotic. Like yeah. they have genes, they have feelings, they can change <laughs> and they can change to it. That's why they suggest that people who have um, immune disorders and like sort of inflammation and, and stuff like that don't take probiotics unless they talk to their doctors because I don't think we still don't know what happens to the, the microbes when you put them in an inflamed environment. Yeah, because people are thinking good bacteria, right? I'll right. just take it. And then, right. because I think sometimes in, you know, people get a little bit excited about something, they, they hear that it's good, and then they take like a lot of it. <laughs> right, and yeah, and when it comes to probiotics, yes, they're safe for generally, but you, I really just caution anybody who has any, it's one thing to use to be like, oh, I think I have a leaky gut, I feel a little off today. But somebody who has irritable bowel syndrome or somebody who has short bowel syndrome or somebody who has um, uh, uh, bacterial overgrowth, you don't probably wanna just go take a probiotic because all you're doing is adding fuel to the fire potentially. So, and, and we don't understand what that means. When I say adding fuel to the fire, I'm just, I'm just making it up that it, it could very well be that these lactobacillus get in there and they sense all these bugs and everything and they turn on genes that make them not necessarily healthy. Or it could mean that they just can't elbow their way in. Like, hey guys, let me in. And like, nobody, they're like, yeah, whatever. And then they just get crapped out. I mean, that's like, so it's either, it could be one or the other. I, I like to think that it's much more nuanced and it's sort of this like reprogramming of the probiotics in an inflamed environment. But I mean, there's no evidence for that at this point. Uh, right now so like well that's really but, complex to look at all of that you know and I yeah, think that is well, one of those study, things I think that our study gives I think our study gives a sort of 
it gives well, us it's a new way of thinking because right. from what i can tell just you know being you know at lab meetings or at microbiome club and just what i see in the news media or social media no one's thinking this at all that like oh wait it's your own commensals that could be doing something harmful right right and at least in reaction least, to something right. and i think it's because with this model we have a really great chance because people go in and they get screened for colonoscopy right so colonoscopy screening has reduced the mortality and the, the rate of colon cancer dramatically but it's still one of the leading causes of cancer related deaths out there and so if we have screening colonoscopies and we have the ability to remove these polyps then why is it still the second leading or the, the one of the major leading causes of death cancer-related deaths in the US. Um, and it, it's for a number of reasons, I think. First is that physicians are human and they can miss a polyp. I mean, it's not, it's, have you looked, I mean, have you looked at a colonoscopy? It looks just like yeah. a lot of folds and a lot of, looks like you're going <laughs> through the Lincoln Tunnel, but it's like kind of, <laughs> so it, I can see it's really easy to miss something like that. Um, and sethile serrated polyps are flat. So like, we're all used to seeing polyps as like the little trees, like little, Broccoli's in the, as yeah. it's not true that like some are like that, but some are flat and like more mucoid, and that's the sethile serrated. So it's easy to miss that in the thing. And then there's something called in between. Um, I can't remember what it's called. There's something about how like in between your colonoscopies, there's a lot of people can like progress really quickly to cancer. So it might not have been there, and now all of a sudden it's there. So the idea of like how do we improve? screening since we've already done the, the invasive sort of let's put a camera up your butt and like let's pull out these polyps um how do we improve that because some people don't want to do that i mean you i've been in clinics i've seen patients do not like things up their butts like i can tell you <laughs> that right now like it's invasive they don't want to do it and so that's why these things like cologuard um which is that at home screening so like they put like a poop smear on a thing and it will tell you your chances, like likelihood of having a, a cancer, a polyp, or something like that. I have not really looked at it. Are coming out like people are trying to figure out a, a easy diagnostic or pre-diagnostic tools to help to go in concert with the colonoscopy. So, what we're hoping to do is um, take this project where we we focus on BFRAG at first, but we actually have found that there's actually taxonomic, which is like basically microbial composition. Mm -hmm. differences between different types of polyps. So like if you're an individual with a sessile serrated polyp, we found that your microbiome is different from the uh, tubular adenoma patient or a polyp-free patient. So we're trying to take that data now and-, and Oh wait, upon. hold on. You yes. have found yes. that. Okay. Yes. So this is in the paper that we're trying to publish is that Okay. We see differences in the three different classes of polyps. So polyp-free, sessile serrated tubular adenoma, it's a small patient cohort. It needs to be reproduced with like a larger cohort. So we're trying to seek out funding right now to be able to um, to expand that to include like 150, 200 patients so that we can really get solid statistics so that we can then develop some in vitro or I'm sorry, some at-home tools that you could maybe send in a stool sample and check to see if th that your composition is somewhat leaning towards a polyp of somebody who has a polyp. And so then that way you can say, oh, I better go get screened. Or you can say, well, I can wait another two years and get screened, you know, whatever. Or you use these in between your colonoscopies just to make sure that there's nothing to change. So 
but I think it's a way to try to catch all. And so our first study was all mucosal biopsies, but we're trying, to, we're putting together a grant, which I have to work on right now, but we're also seeking funding uh, yeah. through any source possible. If you have money, yeah. you want to put the funding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> put some dollar signs and some coins. I'll and put a link, <laughs> right, a yeah. GoFundMe link. <laughs> link here, link here. Um, yeah, so we're, we are currently seeking funding to support expanding this to look at stool and also blood and to look at the metabolites as well as the um, microbiome associated wow. with it. So it's a very comprehensive grant and I think it's, I think it's a beautifully written grant, but you know what I think is it doesn't mean anything. And uh, <laughs> we'll talk about funding and granting on a different day when- um, We actually should, because I think yeah. that that's something that the greater public has no idea how all that works. Yeah. Um, I, and I think it's really fascinating what doesn't doesn't get funded or what doesn't. And you know, I should have a couple get... drinks. I should have a couple drinks before I start. Talking. Yeah, probably. So so yeah, but but like I said, we are currently seeking funding for this project, expanding to school so that we can try to be even less invasive. Because right now we're looking at biopsies, but we'd like to be able to take a stool sample and show that it's similar to the mucosal biopsy, and so that we could then maybe push to use stool for this sort of or species, whatever you want to call it for. Um, for this study. So I think I love, I really like, this is one of my favorite projects right now. It's yeah, like, I actually, to be honest, and hearing all of this now, I, no joke, this project is now more interesting to me than it was before. Yeah. And, and I and hope I, that the paper, um, I, I mean, this is one of those things where I hope it, we can get it picked up in the news media where someone who um, writes scientifically for or can take, you know, a paper yeah. like this and have it um, be understood by, you know, someone like me, because I'll read your paper and I'll be like, yeah, that's great. It seems cool and interesting. Yeah. And like, it should no, I think it, it, it opens up the door to a lot. And I didn't realize how much it opens up. To, and actually, this is something that's interesting, too, is like, I've always, you know, again, I hate dogma. And I hate sort of like, I'm much bigger fan of like, uh, when I think of biology and biological sciences, I think of like behind the lab bench sort of test. And I'm a cellular immunologist by training. And like, I've just always been in the lab. I've never done dry work. Like I'm not a computational biologist. I'm not a bioinformatics or biostatistician. Like I'm not one of these people. So I take that for granted a lot of the time. And I, and I realize like, this is a, an instance in my life where I had to re redact myself or something I've had to retract myself because I've been such a stickler about like well if you're going to take your data and you're going to put it through a pipeline and it's going to spit out these protein pathways well go test the protein pathways and like tell me that that's for real don't just yeah put it a hypothetical like and then don't title the paper functional because you don't know if it's functional because all you did was put it through a pipeline that says this protein's involved or this bacteria and so that always pisses me off in a, in a sense. So like, I tend to be like, well, just take it one step further and really give me that data. This case, so I had to, like I said, eat my words and I'm, I'm as opinionated as I am, I'm at least will acknowledge when my opinions were wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> this is a case of when my opinion was wrong. And it, really once we brought in a bioinformatics person to start really looking at the data, that's when everything started clicking through for me and finding like looking at, looking at these data in different manners. Who, I mean, who was it that? Oh, is, it's Ian, Ian Stano. Oh, it is, okay, okay. Yeah, so like we brought him in to help look at the data and he like did some different analyses and everything. And it looked, it just opened my eyes to like what we could actually do. And he's the one that kind of found these signatures associated with the polyps and it's all through bioinformatics. So the nice thing about the next step is like, I'm doing what I 
urge other people to do, which is we have this sort of finding and it looks nice and it's signatures. And now we want to make it, we want to in, induce, uh, induce, we want to increase the number of patients that we screen to get a higher statistical difference. We want to, so we're basically applying this model, but we're going to test it now in, in a yeah. better cohort of people. And I think that that's why I'm excited about this grant. And I think that, you know, following- Where are you putting this one in? This grant is where it's you putting- in, It's due next week. Like I have to like, I'm, as soon as I log off of this, I'm opening up my grants and I'm going to finish it up. Like we have to yeah. work, do like on Monday or Tuesday. So like we're almost there. So. And with who? It's through the National Institutes of Health. But um, it, is that who you mean? It's yeah, being, is which um, branch of it'll go through um, the digestive disease and kidney? Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. And I DDK. Yeah. Yeah, DDK. Yeah. So, um, so that's where we'll submit it um, this this round, and then knock on wood. Hopefully, it goes through and we get funding, or um, maybe the stork. The storks bring babies, not money, right? So, does it? Yes. Some sort of yes. Bird I'm I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's true. Yeah. I don't, I don't want a baby. I just want money. So like <laughs> send the storks with the cash. Don't send the storks with the infants because uh, I'm not ready for that. Um, but anyway, so yeah. So I think that that project is really, uh, it's something that I, I really enjoyed and it's very highly clinical. We have, it's all patient samples and patient data. And it's very much like we went from the microbiome of the tissue to isolating bacteria, to doing whole genome sequencing of the bacteria, to then identifying a single gene difference. And then we went all the way back up. So we took that single gene. We then looked to see if it was present in the patient tissue. And then, you know, now we're trying oh, to- so, so many different, yeah, so, so many different pieces. This is how I love doing science. Like, this is what excites me about science is when you can, when you have a project that's like so nice to go from patient to, to something you can test and then you can go from that something you can test back to the patients and like and and even though like we're not finished we want to come up with a diagnostic or something like that I think that sort of top down bottom up approach is like it includes both patient data and microbiome data and whole genome sequencing and microbiome taxonomic sequencing I mean it's just a beautiful project we did the yeah. proteomics in this like it's a beautiful sort of, I, lo I love that. Like, that's what I like about science is when you can find a project and very few labs do this. And I'm not saying that we're like the, a wonderful lab, like I have my papers too, but this project just, the project led us down this road. And it just, if you listened to the data and looked at it, every step made sense. And I think the project came together really beautifully. And I'm like really proud of this project. Like it's probably in my whole career, I think that this project is, oh, is, the, is probably one. the best one. Yeah. 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 Well, it flows really nicely. I mean, yeah. I'm familiar with it enough and understand enough to have seen it um, grow over the years and how it does flow from one piece of information to another and how it all comes together this, with this really nice um, bow, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm really happy with that. And like, and I have to give my and credit to Melissa Cordati, who was like a graduate student in my lab for most of this. She's now progressed. She's in France doing a postdoc, but like this, and I, I like to give credit where credit's due. And so her and Ian have really definitely made this paper. Melissa drove this whole project from scratch and-, and Yeah, and, and she's it. actually gonna be presenting in a couple of weeks. So now I feel like I have a better background um, yeah. to listen to her at Microbiome Club. Yeah, um, yeah, and then she'll, she's gonna do a guest appearance for France. Yeah, live, from France. Live from France. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
she'll be eating a croissant and having coffee. There'll be a mime in the background. I mean, this is so, uh, I mean, I'm right exactly eating on the beach my car uh, <laughs> so, um all right well on that note then um i'll let you I go i'm goodbye i guess it's just right. i think yeah i don't know <laughs> i think it's pretty much that <laughs> i'm in a box oh okay. don't put me in a box getting back okay. to your comment earlier oh the box <laughs> comment right Many people can go in boxes or buckets or pizzas. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah, great. Um, next week, what are we talking about next week? As a, as a well, so I wanted to ask you about all your projects. So oh. I wanted to talk about um, the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease project next okay. week. Oh, and then for some fatty liver. I yeah. thought, what's that? So stay tuned for some fatty liver. <laughs> Preview, okay. Yeah. Actually, right. you know what might be cool? Yeah. Since we um well, this isn't cool for anyone who is going to listen to this, but <laughs> anyone who is going to watch it, um, and I could always put um, you know, a link in the show notes or something like that, but it might be cool to show an image of um non-fatty liver and then okay. the fatty liver, which you know looks like more Tadella in its Oh, that's a, it's a really good image. I mean, it's it's yeah. gross. And, and like, I think we have, and I I think you can do it. I mean, for here we could slide share it, right? So I could just put yeah. the slides in, right, right, right. So then, yeah, we can just do that because then I could show like the diet effects on the, the liver too. So like we could have the the mortadella, and then like what happens if you eat, you know, pale? Because as a preview, stay tuned next week for this podcast. It's going to be what what does paleo diets do to your fatty liver disease? Can, it, can, it, can a paleo diet cure your fatty liver? Which, yeah, no, and this one I actually have an affection for since I pretty much forced Tanya um, <laughs> when we were at the CrossFit gym. I was like, no, 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 you don't want to work with so-and-so. Just talk to Will. I'm telling you, you guys will get along. I was like, maybe you could do something with like a paleo diet. And right. so then- Yeah, I know, it was great. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, that'll be a fun topic next week. I think that'll be a good one. Yeah, all right, all right. All right, I'll let you go. Thank you. To go work on my grants. Bye. Yes. Okay. Bye. Unless I receive funding between now and then, but it's just, I mean, you never know. The store could be on its way. I think there's one at the window right now. I'm gonna go check. (laughs) See you later. All right, bye. So that's the Cancer Pala project. That project started in Depalo Lab in 2017. Um, so you can see how long it takes research to get just a few little clues. Um, to be able to get to the point where Will can actually then develop some testing tools using this information would be amazing. Um, and he's never not actively seeking funding from the NIH or another similar source. In fact, he's always, always writing a grant. If he's not writing a grant, he's um, writing a paper. But private funding is always appreciated. So again, if you're interested, please get in touch with me directly all the t- contact information will be in the podcast description. Um, and the paper, the paper will be out in a few weeks and we'll definitely record an episode about the paper and Will will, again, very patiently walk me through that. So the next episode is about non-alco- <laughs> the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. 
Nathold. And um, it's another great project. And I think there are some other great analogies to explain that. I'm pretty sure this is the jacket analogy, the red and blue jacket analogy, which I love. Um, so definitely join me for that one. If you've got questions for Will, please let me know in the comments or um, email me directly at aparker at medicine.washington.edu or visit the podcast website, yourgutquestions.com and go to the contact page there. See ya.